are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Well, good morning, Sojourn. It is good to be with you as we continue to exist as the scattered church right now. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. It's good to be back with you. Uh, I've been off on paternity leave now for a few weeks uh, with the birth of my son, Luke. And so it's good to be back with you, diving back into the Gospel of John in our Seeing Jesus sermon series. I'm going to be in it this week. Uh, And then actually, we have the, the privilege of hearing from uh, pastor Mark Mullery. Mark is a pastor at Redeeming Grace Church, uh, and he's actually going to come next week and preach on fear. So we're going to take a little bit of a break from our Seeing Jesus sermon series and dive back into our Life Along the Way series, a series where we're talking about uh, just the realities of living as a disciple in a fallen world. And so Mark's going to come and he's going to preach on fear. So make plans to uh, be with us next week, worship with us next week as he preaches God word, God's word. Then I'll be back the following week in June as we dive into John chapter 8. But before we begin our time in God's word this morning, uh, would you just pray with me and just, just ask God to bless our time. So pray, let's pray together now. Father God, we come before you and we declare what is true from beginning to end in your word, what is true in all of creation, that you are a God of glory, the God of glory. And so God, we pray that as we open up your word now, that you would be glorified today. May Christ be exalted in our time together as we open up your word this morning. May be exalted in this time so that he might be exalted in our lives. God, help us to see Jesus clearly today. Help us to be satisfied in Christ and him alone. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would use our time in your word to mold us, to shape us, to be more like Christ, to honor you and glorify you, God, in everything we think, say, and do. And so we pray that you bless this time now, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, a few years ago, uh, my family and I decided that we were going to try and figure out something we could do that would be a lot of just fun for us as a family, something uh, most of the time to be relaxing that we could do that was different uh, than just kind of our normal routines of life. And so we decided to become season ticket holders of the Washington Nationals. And, you know, if you know our family, we're big baseball fans. And so we decided to get a half season plan a few years ago. And most of the time it is fun. It's something we can do together as a family, uh, something we can do together with friends. Most of the time it's relaxing, though. If you watch baseball, sometimes that's not the case, especially if your team is not doing particularly well. But last year was great because the Nats won the World Series. Uh, but if you've been to professional sporting events, you know that the concessions at a professional sporting event in the stadiums are usually a tad bit overpriced. I mean, at Nats Park, a bottle of water is five bucks. Five dollars for a bottle of water. I mean, you can buy a whole case of water for less than five dollars. Well, after we began going, our first season of being ticket season holders, uh, I, I learned some really important information. This information is huge. It, what I found out was is that you can actually bring water or drinks into Nats Park along with food. And so instead of buying a $5 bottle of water on a very hot day where I knew I was going to be thirsty for some water, I would buy a big ice cold bottle of water outside of Nats Park and then bring it in with me. The vendors would freeze it so it was really, really cold, a little bit of ice left in it, a little bit of water in it, and could enjoy that throughout 
the game. And also, if I needed to fill up more water with that ice still being in there, I could just go to the water fountain and refill my drink. And on a hot summer day, and, and most of the baseball season happens over the summer, water is essential. And so it was a blessing to me to know where I could find some refreshing water, satisfy my thirst, and also to know a source where I could fill it back up again. Well, today we're diving back into John chapter 7, and there's a lot going on within this scene that we're looking at in John's chapter 7. There's a lot of a lot of clamor, a lot of noise, even some confusion, and all of it really has to do with who Jesus is, who Jesus is. And so right smack in the middle of this text, though, what we see is, is that in the midst of all this confusion, in the midst of all these different things and, and thoughts and words that people are sharing about who they think Christ is, right smack in the middle of that, Jesus makes another bold statement, another profound statement about himself and about us, the life that we can have in him, the life we now live. And all of it has to do with being thirsty. All of it has to do with water. And it's where we're going to spend most of our time in the text today. Listen, here's my hope for us this morning, that as we walk through this part of Jesus's story in the gospel of John, that God would use it to help, to help quiet the clamor, the noise that might be going on in your life right now, might be going on in your heart and your mind, maybe related to everything that's going on in the world around us, maybe something that's going on for you personally, that God would use this time in his word to quiet that before us this morning, in us this morning, and really help you and help me to focus in on the truly refreshing words that Jesus speaks to you. These are Jesus's words to you. And no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey this morning, my hope is as we open up God's word that your soul will be encouraged. My hope is your affections will be stirred more for Christ. My hope is, is that your heart and mind would be left in awe of our great, amazing Savior. See, what Jesus says here about himself and about you is essential, not just to consider kind of in a, in a, cognitive way just within your brain, but to take hold of in your life for the sake of life and joy that can be for you and for others as well. So let's go ahead and dive into John chapter 7 this morning and seek to see Jesus more clearly today. I'm going to read all of our text this morning just so we know kind of what is going to be unfolding within this story. So it's a longer chunk of scripture, chapter 7, verses 25 through 52. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open that up and read along with me. Here's what the Apostle John writes. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. 
You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean saying you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see, no prophet arises from Galilee. Last week, we saw Jesus arrive in Jerusalem for what's called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and Josh preached last week and he, and he shared a bit about what that festival was all about, that feast was all about. But in a, in a nutshell, what this time was for God's people every year is that God's people gathered together at this feast to celebrate his provision for them most specifically in his provision for them when they were wandering in the wilderness. It's part of the history of God's people. And so they would come to ev together every year to commemorate that, to celebrate that, and to give thanks for what God had done and, and in prayer for what he would hopefully do. It, it was a time in, a, in the festival, in this celebration, where they would celebrate, they would sacrifice, they would worship God. And as we look at our text today, we see we're still in the midst of this festival still taking place within Jerusalem. And Jesus has just made some really bold statements about himself that we looked at last week. Some really bold statements. And he ends that time saying something very instructive for God's people then and for us now. Verse 24, look back at it. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. In other words, don't just look at what you see on the outside. Don't make an assessment of me by what you see on the outside. Judge with right judgment. Know who I really am. But then... They basically do the exact opposite of what Jesus has just said. Look at verse 25 and 27 of our text today. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Isn't it, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Basically, a theological debate has broken out and they kind of take a slight jab at the Pharisees, the religious teachers, the crowd thinks, okay, wait a minute. Isn't this the guy that they, they keep saying that they want to capture and kill? See, the whispers and the words and the feelings and intentions of the Pharisees and religious leaders as it relates to Jesus have started to spread. People know that these religious leaders, they don't just want to quiet Jesus. They want to eliminate 
Jesus. So people are like, well, wait a minute. He's right here. He's right in front of them. He's literally standing in the temple, the most holy place of God's people. And he's teaching openly. Why aren't they coming in to arrest him? Why aren't they coming to take him captive? Oh, I know what it might be. Maybe they really know that he is the promised Messiah, the promised Christ. See, the people of Israel, God's people had been looking and longing for a Messiah to come. Messiah and Christ are interchangeable words. They've been longing for the Messiah to come, this anointed rescuer who would save God's people from their enemies. The Old Old Testament speaks of this promised one over and over and over again. In fact, the whole storyline of the scriptures are about God's faithfulness to his plans and to his people to rescue them. But What the religious leaders missed and what a lot of people missed about this promised Messiah, about this anointed rescuer, the Christ, is that he wasn't going to come to rescue them from their their physical oppressors, from, in this case, their Roman oppressors. The reason this Messiah was to come, this reason this anointed rescuer was to come, was to rescue them from the oppressiveness of their own sin, to rescue them from the oppressiveness of their own rebellion against God, which had resulted in their condemnation, which had resulted in spiritual death. So the crowd thinks, well, maybe this really is him. Well, wait a minute, though. I don't think it can be him because our our teachers, our religious teachers have told us that we won't know where this Christ comes from. We won't know where the Messiah comes from. And we know where this guy comes from. Well, first off, that just flat out isn't actually true. And we see that actually even just within this text. If we flip over to verses 41 and 42, where there's more debate raging, more conversations that are going on, listen to what the the crowd says there. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? They're questioning Jesus's origins here. But listen to what they say in verse 42. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They know that the Messiah is supposed to come from this particular place. So they're questioning this here. And, you know, the funny thing about this, I guess it's funny. This whole scene kind of reminds me of what I've seen a lot over the last few weeks on social media, where you jump on Facebook and you see people debating about the coronavirus. Like all of a sudden, everybody's an expert epidemiologist, right? I mean, oh, I know how this should go and I know how this should go. And there's just a lot of misinformation, a lot of confusion about what is right and what isn't right, what is true and what isn't true, Well, the same thing's happening right here. There's a lot of confusion about who Jesus is, a lot of misinformation about the Messiah. And the same thing is true for us today when it comes to who Jesus is. That's why we're doing this series, this series called Seeing Jesus. We want to see Jesus rightly because in seeing Jesus rightly, we are then able to follow him fully. If we really know who Jesus is, who he claims to be, And not just, again, in an academic sense, but a a, a real picture of Jesus, his person, his life. And when we come to see Jesus rightly and are able to follow him fully, we see our lives radically changed, radically transformed, not just by his teaching, but by his person, who he is, what he is doing, and what he will continue to do. And so this crowd is having these conversations about the origins of the Messiah, the origins of Christ. And Jesus speaks into that as he often does. Look at verses 28 and 29. It says this. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. 
this almost has the sense of kind of a, a questioning statement. Like, you know me or you think that you know me? You think you know about me? You think you're an expert now about what's going on? Let me tell you who I am and where I'm actually from. You know my hometown. You know where I come from. But this isn't about that in an earthly sense. You don't know the whole story. My origins aren't about uh, moving from one locale to another locale. No, I have been with the Heavenly Father. I've been seated in the heavenlies along with the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit for all eternity and all time. And I was sent by Him, the one you say that you know, but you evidence over and over again you don't actually know. See, I know Him, Jesus says. I know Him because I was sent by Him on a cosmic rescue mission. And this is such a bold statement that Jesus makes that we see in the next verse in verse 30 that some of the people wanted to arrest him right then. They were offended by what Jesus was saying to them. He's saying, I know him, but you don't actually know him. But some of the people decide that they do believe in him. Verse 31 says, yet many of the people believed in him. They, they looked at Jesus and they said, well, who else could do signs like this? Is the real Messiah, the real Christ going to do anything greater than this man? This must be the promised one. Well, these whisperings and wanderings about who Jesus is continue to grow, and, and that makes the religious leaders nervous. It makes them angry. It makes them frustrated, and so they decide to try to do something about it. Look at verses 32 and 36. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? See, things are heating up for Jesus. This official dispatch of arresting officers is kind of upping the ante for what's going on as tension contends to, continues to build around who Jesus is. But that doesn't seem to work either because Jesus responds to these guards that come to him. And he's essentially saying this, you come to arrest me, but you can't take me. You're not in control of my life. You're not in charge of this situation. You have nothing on me. I will go when my father who sent me says it's time for me to go. The officers and perhaps some of the people around her are just perplexed. Like, who is this guy who says things like this? What does he actually mean? Now, some time passes at this point and the day of the feast arrives, the most important day of the whole thing. And it's here that Jesus delivers this profound statement. Again, you can feel the tension building. People are curious. They're kind of pressing in. Jesus, what's going on here? And so Jesus takes this opportunity to make a profound statement. Look at verses 37 and 38. It says this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I remember reading these words a few years ago and just being drawn to them. Like, I really like that. I like what Jesus says here. They, they, they had an impact on me. I like the way they sounded. I like the way they felt. They, they drew me in. I mean, do they do that for you? Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But see, when I read these words several years ago, I wasn't reading them within the context. Like, why does Jesus say this right 
here? Might I gain a better understanding, a more impactful understanding if I know what's going on here? See, Jesus stands up and he cries out these words at the culmination of the Feast of Booze, the Feast feast of Tabernacles, because on this day, what took place was this. A golden pitcher was filled with water in a pool of Siloam. And then it was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. As the high priest, along with his procession, approached the gates of the inner court of the temple, choirs sang out and a trumpet was blasted three times. This ram's horn was blown through three times to proclaim that this procession was coming. And a choir was singing psalms that all culminated in Psalm 118, which is a psalm of rescue of God's people. They declare that God is their salvation and their song, their strength and help in time of need. And this water then, along with wine, was poured out at the altar of God. Now, if we look back through the scriptures, we don't see this uh, tradition prescribed in the Old Testament, but it was a tradition that was performed at this festival. It was a celebration of thanksgiving as God's people looked back at how God had provided water for his people in the midst of the wilderness. If you go back to the Old Testament, you see that over and over again, God provides food and water for them out of a rock. But it's also looking ahead to the provision God will give his people for their crops, for, his, for their families, and continuing to provide for them. And it ultimately looks forward to the end of days. In Ezekiel chapter 47, where it says that water will flow from the temple to give life to the ends of the earth. We can look throughout the scriptures in places like Isaiah and other prophets talking about how water will be given. Water will flow to give life to God's people. But here's the crazy thing. Jesus has already said, as we learned in John chapter 6, he's already said that he is the bread of heaven. He is the manna. That when bread was falling from heaven for God's people in the Old Testament, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. It pointed to him. And hear what he's saying, not just to the woman at the well like he did before, but to all of this crowd of people is that I am the life-giving water. Just as God provided water through you, for you through a rock in the wilderness, I am that rock. I am the source of that water. In fact, Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This blows my mind. I hope it blows your mind as too. It gets you excited about who Christ is. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For they, meaning the people of God in the wilderness, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Jesus supersedes everything that the history of God's people pointed to. And so when Jesus stands up at this point, at this particular time, in the midst of this festival and says, come to him and drink, and that everyone who comes to him and drink out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, he is declaring in this moment that he is the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. He points back to and forward to all that this festival anticipates rescue, restoration, radical transformation by the Holy Spirit, life now and forever. All of it comes in and through Jesus. Now, this is a theme that's come up already multiple times within the gospel of John. We've heard about Jesus being water. We've heard about Jesus being the source of lasting life, eternal life, joy, and satisfaction. Just this week in community group, one of the guys in in my group said, you know, it seems like Jesus repeats himself a lot. We were rereading John 6 together. And it's he was kind of saying like, isn't that good, right? Like we need to be reminded of it over and over again. We need to hear Jesus's words over and over again because we so easily forget them. Isn't 
wonderfully kind of our Savior to remind us of what is true, especially as you and I find ourselves in the midst of a world that is full of distractions, lots of false promises give to, given to us, allurements to say, hey, you can find life over here, you can find satisfaction over here. In the midst of times where fear is elevated, where we're uncertain about tomorrow, that the world around us is, oh, this is how you'll be secure. This is how everything will be okay. Isn't it kind of our Savior to remind us that in the midst of all the noise around us, that what remains true is that he continues to be the only source of life, the only place where our soul can be satisfied. So let me ask you, are you thirsty? Not, not in a physical way. Are you thirsty in the depth of who you are as a human? At the soul level, do you have thirsts? Then come, come to Jesus, drink deeply and be satisfied. To come to Jesus and drink means that we believe in him. We trust in him. It's about beginning a relationship with Jesus and continuing that relationship with Jesus. But it isn't intellectual assent to a philosophical Jesus. It's looking to the real Christ and having a wholehearted commitment to him as a person, participating in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, walking with the person of Jesus, which is why he says what he does in verse 38. I don't want us to miss what he says in verse 38. Come to him, drink, be satisfied, and be changed. See, when you come to be satisfied and saved in and through Jesus, out of your heart, what does he say? Flow rivers of living water. Last summer, I had the privilege of going to the Dead Sea for a few hours. And the Dead Sea is a strange place. It's the lowest point on the face of the earth. And it's this sea that's pretty good size, a sea that is, is so salty, it can't uh, sustain life at all. There's nothing really living within the Dead Sea or even kind of right around it. It's a very arid, dry place. That's the reality of your heart. When you're born into this world, you and me, when we are born into this world, the reality of our heart is it's like the Dead Sea. It's closed in. No life happens there. It's a place of death. And we are all dead in our trespasses and sin. We've all rebelled against God. We've all sought to go our own way and throw off God's authority, worshiping anything and everything except him. But what this text is telling us, what Jesus is proclaiming is the crowd is pressing in as people are curious about who he is. And that's true today, just as it was then. That when Jesus comes, when Jesus invades your life, when he invites you to himself, everything changes. The heart, your heart, that was like the Dead Sea is transformed to not be a Dead Sea, but be a river of living water that flows from without you now. It flows, it moves, it's alive, it sustains life. Man, I love rivers. Like when I watch the movie, A River Runs Through It, I don't want to learn to fly fish. I just want to go stand in the middle of a river. Like I love the way that it feels. I love what it is. It, there's just something about it. that's There's peace in a river. There's power in a river. It's both mesmerizing and majestic at the same time. And Jesus says, that's what happens when you come to him and drink. Everything changes for you. A place of death becomes a place of life and a place of movement. But this is really important for us to understand here. The qualification for you to come, the qualification for you to experience life and satisfaction and transformation in and through Jesus isn't knowledge, it's need. 
its need. All who are thirsty come to him. The reality is you won't come unless you recognize your daily thirst and need for Jesus. So let me ask you this morning, do you know your need, your daily regular need for Christ? See, all of us have thirsts in life. We have actual physical thirst that can be satisfied in a variety of ways. That's one of the privileges that we have of living in the West, living in this particular area, that if we are thirsty, we can go turn on a faucet in our house and receive water to quench our thirst. But the thirst of your soul, the thirst that all of us have at a soul level can only and ever be satisfied in and through Jesus as the Holy Spirit works on us and in us. So where might you be looking right now to be satisfied in life instead of looking to Jesus? Where might you be looking right now to quench your thirst for your soul? How often we can miss the forest for the trees. We can miss the Savior and Sustainer who is ever before us, the one who says to us that if you are weary and you are burdened and you are tired, that you can find rest at the level and the depth of your soul in Him. How often we can miss him when he's right before us. How often we can look to him more in an academic way or for the sake of underlining things in our Bible or just for knowledge. I mean, the reality is you can know a lot about Jesus, but not know Jesus. You can know the name of Jesus. You can say the name of Jesus, but not actually see Jesus. But here, Jesus is inviting you to come. He's inviting you to come to him empty-handed, ready to receive, ready to see your dead heart transformed into a river of living water. Man, will you do that today? Maybe some of you for the very first time that you would turn to Christ to find your hope in life and satisfaction in him. For others of you this morning, it's just a, an act of, of fresh faith and repentance that if you find yourself having turned away to other things besides Christ to satisfy the thirst of your soul, you turn to him once again to see your heart continue to be molded and continue to be transformed, that living water might flow out of you. I love that John tells us more of what Jesus means in verse 39. Look at verse 39 again. John says, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were ready to or were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. See, the Holy Spirit has always been present. The Holy Spirit has always been at work. But he would come and he would dwell within the heart and life of the believer at a later point. Jesus himself says so later in the Gospel of John. We need the Holy Spirit to awaken us to our need for Christ and our thirst for Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us so that life can flow out of us. But the Spirit wouldn't come until the cross. The Spirit wouldn't come until the empty tomb. The Spirit wouldn't come until Jesus ascended back into the heavenlies to sit at the right hand of the Father. See, later on in John, we see that Jesus would go to a cross to bear all the weight of your sin and all the weight of your shame. The reality and the result and the, the production of what your dead heart brings about, what your dead heart produces is more death. But when he did this, he took all of it on. And when he was crucified, breathing his last, declaring that it is finished, the earth shook, the temple, the curtain in the temple tore in two, and the world would never, ever be the same. Then three days later, Jesus rose forth from the grave, and he spent time with his disciples, and he declared this to them, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them, 
and they would be his witnesses locally and globally. Why? Why would he say this? That you need the Holy Spirit to do this? It's the reality of what happens here in John 7, that out of your life will flow rivers of living water so that people from every tribe, every language, and every nation would know the life-giving truth of what Jesus declares to you right here and ultimately provides for you through his cross and through his resurrection that freedom and forgiveness, life now and forever are found in him. Here's why this is good news for you and for me this morning as followers of Jesus. What this is telling us and reminding us of this morning is that the source of life isn't you. The source of transformation in your own life isn't you. It's Jesus in the spirit. You can't bring about life in yourself. You can't bring about life in someone else. You can't bring about transformation totally on your own and you can't bring about transformation in the life of someone else. You need the Holy Spirit who's made you alive to bring those things about in you and in others. This has been super encouraging to me this week. It's been kind of a weird week or two for me where I felt um, discouraged, have a lot of swirling thoughts, wondering and worrying about all kinds of things. At times, feeling like a failure in Uh, sufficient and effective in what God has called me to do. But you know what? I love God's word because I read this text this week and I reread it again. And I was reminded of two just really encouraging, helpful things that I hope will be an encouragement to you. The thing I was reminded of after reading this text was one, that my identity and my sufficiency are not created or maintained by me. The source is and always will be King Jesus. And secondly, that because I am in Christ, because my life has been hidden with Christ in God, that I am rescued and redeemed, made new in him, no longer to be condemned for my sin, past, present, or future, that I have the Holy Spirit alive within me. That I have the Holy Spirit alive within me and he is always at work in me and through me. The same thing is true for you if you are in Christ. What this means is, is If you're a follower of Jesus right now, there isn't a pond within you that's closed in. No, there's a river of living water flowing out of you right now. And where that river flows and how it impacts those around you, maybe you'll see the fruit of that. Maybe you won't. But that doesn't mean that God isn't at work. It doesn't mean that God isn't working on you right now in incremental ways to bring about transformation, to make you more like Christ. It doesn't mean that God isn't at work through you to see encouragement given to others, grace given to others, life given to others. There is an outgoing nature to life in Christ, a river of living water flowing out of your heart to those around you. You are redeemed by Jesus to see others also experience redemption. But you know what the reality is? People will not always respond clearly or favorably to the invitation that Jesus gives. Not then, not now. We see this at the close of chapter 7. In these last verses, some people think, oh, Jesus is the prophet. Others say, no, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. The reality is he's both. But still others, especially the religious elite, continue to reject Jesus. These officers come back and the religious leaders are like, why haven't you brought him? They're indignant over this. They belittle Jesus, they belittle the crowd, and those who think that he is who he says he is. All but one leader, Nicodemus. Look at verses 50 and 51. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? What's different about him? What's different about Nicodemus? 
is Nicodemus has actually spent time with Jesus. He's actually spent time talking with Jesus, intently listening to Jesus, having a very real and legitimate encounter with Jesus. What about you? Have you truly listened to Jesus? Have you responded to his life-giving message? Are you listening to him now? Let the thirsty come. Come and drink deeply from Jesus. Be satisfied in him. Where else will you go? To whom else will you go? He alone has the words of life. Brother, sister, friend, may you drink deeply from the wellspring that Jesus is. May you be satisfied in him and may your heart burst forth in life. May rivers of living water flow out from you to the glory of God and for the good of those around you. May we worship our God as we fix our eyes on Christ. May you be satisfied in him. Let's pray. God, we confess this morning that we often seek to quench our thirst in other things besides Christ. And so God, we bring that before you and we confess that to you this morning. We ask that you transform us. Help us to drink deeply from Jesus and him alone and to be satisfied in him alone. And may rivers of living water flow from us to impact those around us, our kids, our spouse, our roommates, our family members, our neighbors, our co-workers, to the ends of the earth. God, would you enliven us? Would you quicken our hearts and our souls so that we might know Christ and be in awe of him, our affection stirred for him, and that would overflow to those around us. They also might experience redemption and grace and satisfaction and joy in life in Jesus as well. God, would you work in us and through us? Help us to fix our gaze on Christ, to see Jesus rightly so that we might follow him fully. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Love you all. Grace and peace to you. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.